Uh, welcome to Tav's Two Cents. Today on the show, we have Doomberg. Doomberg is still the top financial substack. And today we're talking about nuclear energy. We're talking about uranium. And we even dabble a little bit in oil and gas for anyone who's interested. I think this is a great discussion and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Tab's Two Cents, the show where we discuss multiple income streams and macro factors affecting the world today. Hey, Doomberg, welcome back to the show. Joe, three times a charm. Great to be back. Absolutely. Yeah, we're always happy to have you here. I thought maybe we could just start if you wanted to just talk about a couple of things you're working on, maybe let some people know what you do. Yeah, sure. I'm the head writer of the Doomberg Substack, and we write about um, energy finance and the economy at large, publishing anywhere between six to eight pieces a month, depending on the number of days in a month or the, the cadence of our schedule. You know, lately we've been writing a fair bit about global warming um, as an offshoot to our energy uh, pieces that we've written in the past. Uh, most recently, a couple of scathing pieces about the media's behavior as it pertains to all things climate change. And of course, of, of significant interest to you is our previous work on nuclear and uranium. We wrote a piece on uh, a really important project that is a bit under the radar um, that might allow nuclear to displace uh, fossil fuels uh, in the production of industrial steam, which is uh, which got some pretty good traction. And of course, we've been watching with great interest the progress of the, the global nuclear renaissance uh, that has been transpiring. And so, yeah, that's, a, that's sort of a brief summary of the things we have written about in the past and the things that are currently of interest to us today. Yeah, and that's actually exactly what I wanted to get you on the show for is nuclear renaissance we see in progress right now. And it's interesting because you see all these tweets that come out every now and then. And somebody said, you know, if you had to pick one stock and hold it for the rest of your life and never sell it, I'm like, it's kind of a ridiculous question, but it is a bit of a good thought to have. And not that I would only buy a stock and hold it for the rest of my life, but basically what it boiled down to for me is I would want to be long energy and the place where I would want to go for that would be nuclear. And I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about why you think the world went away from nuclear in the first place and why they're coming back to it now. It's a dirty, ugly history. It's it, The anti-nuclear movement was born out of a pretty ugly period in U.S. history in particular that centered around fears of a population explosion, especially in Asia, and how too many humans on the planet might put significant stress on the resources available to us in the West in particular. And that sort of Malthusian instinct flowed actually pretty directly from some ugly eugenicist movements as well in the late 50s. And that hardcore group of anti-nuclear environmental activists still funds a fair bit of the high-profile environmental movement today, which of course, in our view, explains why Greenpeace, for example, is so stubbornly anti-nuclear. Our friend Mark Nelson, who has a great Twitter account at Energy Bants, put out a translated tweet from a French journalist really dressing down Greenpeace for their scandalous opposition to nuclear power. The environmental movement has opposed nuclear power precisely because it is a source of safe, carbon-free energy abundance for all humans, which is, of course, their nightmare scenario. They don't want many humans on the planet. They view humans as the cancer on nature, and any damage that we do to nature whatsoever is unacceptable. And so the second part of your question, which is why is it making a comeback is because I think people are beginning to realize what the trade is on offer. <laughs> the trade is cheap, plentiful, carbon-free power while reducing our carbon footprint with practically little or no changes to our standard of living. That's on one side of the trade. And the other side of the trade is a radical degrowth movement that would lead to mass starvation economic contraction and radical decreases in our standards of living. And when given the choice, no human is going to vote for that, or very few humans are going to vote for that, certainly none that aren't suicidal. And as people sort of work their way through all of the poor solutions to our global carbon footprint dilemma, it follows from physics that they necessarily end that nuclear power. Um, and we're seeing that in most countries in the world, except for Germany. 
Yeah, in Germany, they went ahead and shut down their reactors. And as a result, they've increased in fossil fuel intake and production of energy that way. To me, it just seems bizarre. Why, why do you think Germany would go ahead and do that? So again, we wrote a piece called um, Green is a New Red, which chronicled this crazy degrowth summit that was hosted in the European Parliament itself. And president of the European Union was there at the opening plenary lecture. And the panels were, I mean, it would seem foreign to us that serious people would spend, you know, 18 hours of video on such panels. But like what the first one, which prosperous future confronting narratives of growth? Another one, our particular favorite, is how do we pay for welfare if we're not going to be growing anymore? They take it as an axiom that degrowth and economic contraction is, is a wonderful thing to be pursued. And so I think the German people have been bamboozled into policies that will all but certainly lead to significant deindustrialization. And frankly speaking, we are already beginning to see significant backlash even within Germany. You may recall that there is what the media would describe as a far-right party, alternative for Germany or AFD, alternative for Deutschland. And they recently shocked the German political establishment by winning 53% of the vote cast in what we would call a sort of a county election. And the media has been framing this as, quote, a danger for democracy. And as we said in a piece that we wrote last week called Tour de Farce, how can voting in election be considered anti-democratic? And the media has portrayed this as this upstart populist party as merely feeding off the populace's, quote, economic insecurity and existential angst, as though these feelings just immaculately appear. This is a natural and quite predictable, we've predicted it, backlash to the degrowth agenda. And so, as we warned in that piece, you know, the progressive left risks losing Losing its grip on power, not just in Germany, but across the West, if they continue to insist upon degrading the populace's standard of living in the name of climate change. Yeah, it really gets interesting with energy because energy is the alpha dog of the world, in my opinion. It's the silverback of politics, if you know what I mean. If you have energy in your country, you can do whatever you want because you can power all the industry you need to do and your people will be happy. And things get messy when it comes to energy sometimes. And I wonder with nuclear everybody's seen the documentary i think it's called who killed the electric car and i wonder do you think in 20 30 years something's going to come out and say who suppressed the nuclear power generation or, or something along those lines and why so I would say that such documentaries are already sort of on their way. I'm sure you know of Oliver Stone's recent contribution in the pro-nuclear category. I do think what we're seeing now in real time is rather historic. We're seeing in Canada, for example, and in Ontario in particular, a complete renaissance with nuclear power, uh, refurbishing old reactors and pledging to build new ones, including small modular reactors. Similarly, in the U.S., uh, the Biden administration, to its credit, has worked with Governor Newsom in California to try to save and extend the life of the Apollo Canyon. We just had, after a long series of delays, a new reactors going critical in Georgia. The aforementioned small modular reactor industrial project that Dow and X Energy are pressing forward is very, very interesting to us. Japan, of course, is reengaging with nuclear and, and developing a you know soup to nuts internal supply chain so that it could secure its own energy future, uh, knowing full well that uh, as an island nation without fossil fuels, nuclear power really is the main choice available to them. Sweden famously has walked away from its renewable energy goals and instead will focus on nuclear power, much to the chagrin of the German green movement. France, of course, is trying to lead within Europe a renaissance towards nuclear power and by defining nuclear power as green, much to the outrage of Greenpeace, which is why I was quoting from that French journalist a bit earlier. And so almost everywhere you look, even Belgium is making a bit of a return. 
The Middle East, the oil producers are uh, heading into nuclear in a big way. The United Arab Emirates has really executed a fantastic job. I think their third of four nuclear reactors have just come online and they have set up their citizens for generations of clean, stable, baseload power. India, of course, and China, everywhere you look in the world, except for Germany, we are seeing that people have done the math. They have decided that the standard of living of their populations are worth pursuing. And many of them, thankfully, are going towards nuclear. Now, it's not all perfect. Germany's blunders and Western Europe's blunders overall has led much of the developing world to return to coal because the, the attributes of coal that make it particularly useful still exist. And we have burned more coal in 2022 than we ever had before. And we look set to produce a new record in 2023 and beyond. We wrote about this in a piece called the Streisand Effect, where the path function of the environmental progressive left has kind of had the opposite of the intended effect. And the energy crisis of 2022 has rebounded and has caused the world to refamiliarize itself with the benefits of coal. And so so if you ask me to choose between baseload power, I would take nuclear every time. I understand why people have returned to coal. That too is predictable. But I do think in the long run, the intermittency and the challenges that wind and solar bring to pre-existing grids will be their downfall. And nuclear will be sort of the last technology standing in our race to reduce our carbon emissions. Yeah, I agree 100%. And what's interesting as well with the SMR technology, obviously their primary function is to create power. But as you say, there, there are other use cases for it, like produce steam, for example. And I've seen some articles on nuclear desalination for you know providing clean water with excess energy. I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on SMRs for some people who maybe haven't read into them too much and kind of what they're able to do. Yeah. So SMR technology, SMR, of course, stands for small modular reactors. It's not the SMR nature of the reactors that makes them interesting from an industrial perspective. It is the fact that they are fourth, and in some cases, fifth generation nuclear reactor designs, which allow for the co-production of electricity and reasonably good grade industrial steam. You know, the type of steam that can be produced from Gen 4 type reactors doesn't solve all of our industrial steam needs, but it does shave a fair bit off of the bottom of the pyramid. And interestingly, the production of industrial steam. We laid all this out in a piece called Gaining Steam, which we published in early May. The production of industrial steam today accounts for more carbon emissions than our entire transportation sector, both automotive and aviation, which is pretty amazing. In fact, I think it's 25% more than the sum of those two combined. And there's very precious little talk about what we should do about that. And there's far more focus on you know, electric vehicles, for example. While obviously wind and solar can't really help all that much uh, in the production of industrial grade steam, these fourth generation nuclear reactors certainly can. And the reason why SMR is advantageous in this regard is that you could create, you know, small reactors that are easily housed within pre-existing brownfield site, i.e. integrated uh, petrochemical production facilities and so on that are already well secured and guarded. But the radius of concern around an SMR is much, much smaller than a traditional large modular reactors that we see in production today. And so they can be easily handled within the fence line of pre-existing industrial facilities. And they represent a pretty much, you know, ready-to-go technology to abate a significant slug of, of humanity's carbon emissions. And so that's why we profiled the project uh, between Dow and X Energy, which again, to Biden's credit, is being heavily supported and subsidized by the Department of Energy because this is a sort of first-of-its-kind type project. And kudos to both companies for having the courage to stand up to the environmental lobby and to side with physics and to address that slug of their carbon emissions um, head on. And so uh, it is a fascinating time. And, and, you know, for that reason, 
And I, most people don't realize that like natural gas burned for industrial purposes is very often done in what are known as cogeneration facilities, where both steam and electricity are produced and then used directly on site. And so this is a sort of a, a drop in replacement for much of that technology. Again, not perfect. There's a certain temperature range that fourth generation nuclear reactors cannot obtain. And for those industrial processes, there is no alternative to the current methods as of yet. But still, you know, it's not let better be the enemy of the perfect. And we should pursue that with, with great vigor. Absolutely. I think the industrial uses for SMRs is actually fairly extensive. And a couple of things that come to mind with those are, you know, mining projects that are way north and are actually very large and they need a ton of energy, but they don't have it available to them because they're in remote areas or, you know, oil processes somewhere that are using a, a ton of energy. And also I saw an article that came out said Microsoft was starting to look into SMR technology to power their data centers. So, you know, it's kind of endless for SMRs what they can do. And of course, similar to large reactors, SMRs also run on uranium. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the global uranium trade and production with you and just kind of pick your brain on uranium. Where do you see it now and where do you see it going? Uranium is, of course, fascinating play, one that we've written about since the beginning of Doomberg. We would broadly be bullish uranium for a variety of reasons. The Renaissance is, of course, going to stick a bid under the demand for the commodity. Current prices are still not really conducive to uh, the siting and constructing of new uranium mines. There's a couple of downsides to the trade, of course, which is people don't believe it. And the vehicles to express such a bullish view in some ways are suboptimal. So for example, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust is a closed-end fund. And since there is no redemption mechanism, there's a distinct possibility that that fund could trade at a substantial discount to the net asset value that uranium prices might otherwise have that price reflect. And so for that reason, it's a bit of a challenge to express a bullish view. On the flip side, the price of uranium could double or triple and nobody would notice because of the fuel cost of running a nuclear reactor are relatively de minimis to the remainder of, of what's needed, which is, of course, fine and good if you're bullish uranium. There's, of course, many nuances in the market, like the degree of enrichment and who controls various parts of those supply chains and not sure which direction you'd like to take it. But we would be broadly bullish with the caveat that, you know, I think I saw on Twitter last week that the entire market cap of the uranium sector is less than, you know, something like, forget the number. It's a, it's a tiny, tiny number compared to oil and gas and so on, uh, and even mining and, and, and so on. And so there's a lot of upside potential for it. But at the same time, expressing such a positive view can be a bit challenging. Yeah, absolutely. There are risks to everything. And when it comes to uranium, most of it is being produced in Kazakhstan. And I wonder if you see any kind of political risk on that side of the world for uranium production. I wouldn't think that that would be a huge deal for a couple of reasons. Um, actually, the best resources are, many believe, are in Canada. And there's uh, an effort underway to expand the development of those resources. Australia, of course, is also blessed with a significant amount of uranium. And so if the need truly existed, it would be relatively simple to, to obtain the necessary quantities of uranium, especially if the market price were to signal to miners that they should set about the task of doing so. I just want to complete my answer from the previous question because I was pulling it up on Twitter. Apparently, the entire world uranium market is only 790 million. This is a tweet from BF Randall at mining underscore Adams. And that compares to crude oil market size of 2.1 trillion, just to give you an idea of the potential runway should nuclear become a key component of our energy strategy. It's really remarkable just how overlooked and taken for granted the entire sector is. Back to your question about political risk. I think the more significant political risk is in this more heavily enriched uranium that SMR technologies would require 
and the commercial supply chains for that enriched uranium are currently basically monopolized by Russia, although we do believe, again, uh, given the right set of incentives, that this could be relatively simply overcome, especially with the help of the U.S. Department of Defense. Yeah, I wanted to touch on the war in Ukraine and Russia. And Russia, yeah, they're sort of the world provider of the enriched uranium, as you say. And I think probably the biggest risk to nuclear and to uranium that could ever happen, obviously, would be another nuclear event. And there's been a lot of headlights lately with the war about the, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, the Zapper. <laughs> you go <Ziza>. for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, the large plant in Ukraine starts with a Z and ends with an A. <laughs> yeah. And that is concerning because if something happens at that plant and there's another, you know, Chernobyl, not that it would be that big on that side of the world again, but something bad, some kind of nuclear event, I think that that would be really hard for the world to get over and for politicians to sell all of those other great features that we just mentioned earlier in the pod. I wonder if you could just touch a little bit on the war and the way that you see that shaping up today. So let's be clear the deliberate attack on a civilian nuclear power facility would be, I think, a significant war crime and one that all sides should be heavily opposed. And uh, unfortunately, we do see on Twitter some people seemingly openly hoping that it happens because they're so anti-nuclear that they're looking for that negative story to drive a nail uh, into the coffin of nuclear power once and for all. Now, I should say, if you believe the American Nuclear Society, who put out a statement on July 5th on this exact topic, any fallout from such an attack would be mostly propaganda and very negative propaganda, as you correctly mentioned. But in fact, the ANS believes that there would be very, very unlikely that containment structures would be breached or that any potential release of radiological material would be restricted. You know, they don't think that this is uh, anywhere near, uh, even in the worst case scenario, another Chernobyl or Fukushima and labeling them as such is, to quote them, both inaccurate and misleading. Now, again, this is would be, I think, spitting into a very tough wind of propaganda should either side choose to blow up the nuclear reactor uh, in Ukraine. I would say it's pretty amazing that this war has been going on for so long and so violently and, and nothing has happened to that nuclear plant, which we should all be thankful for. I think the nuclear plant situation in Ukraine is a stronger case to be against war than it is to be against civilian nuclear power. I would also say that in Ukraine, of course, and we wrote about this, a, a very large dam was deliberately destroyed, and that caused dozens and dozens of deaths and wild destruction downstream, and nobody's talking about outlying hydro dams. Yes, hydro dams, if blown up deliberately in a war, can cause significant environmental damage and, and civilian casualties. Why nuclear you know, being attacked and being relatively contained is somehow worse than that just is testimony to the deep nature of the paranoid propaganda that has been propagated by radical Malthusian environmentalists for the past 50 years. It's very hard for people to overcome artificially generated fears of nuclear power. But I do agree that nobody would say that proactively destroying a civilian nuclear power plant would be bullish for nuclear power. Uh, it's just there's no denying it. Yeah, you have to think about the fallout from something like that. And unless you hit the nuclear reactor with a nuclear bomb, it's probably not going to be as bad as everybody would think. And I would argue that the war in Ukraine has already caused much more damage to that part of the world than an event at that plant would have. Yet, as you say, because of the events like Chernobyl and Fukushima, everybody instantly goes to worst case scenario with nuclear. And I think it's going to be really hard to change that perspective that the public holds. I know you're very engaged in Twitter, and this is something that you talk about over the years. Have you started to see the perception change at all, or is it still the, the same 
the momentum is clearly at the back of the pro-nuclear movement. I don't think a deliberate attempt at destroying a nuclear plant in Ukraine is going to affect Canada's decision to continue to roll out their extraordinarily safe and effective can-do reactor technologies. I don't. I think the threat of war breaking out between Ontario and Michigan is very low. And so it's rather unfortunate that there happens to be a nuclear power plant near the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. But absent that risk, there is a sea change, like acceptance of nuclear power underway. In addition, to, I think it would be a deliberate war crime of, of the highest order to purposely destroy a civilian nuclear reactor in the same way that blowing up the dam was, to be totally honest with you. And by the way, for all the talk of Fukushima, zero people die because of Fukushima. And yet the deaths of 50 people for the destruction of a dam, for some reason, I mean, I I think it's appropriate, it it doesn't seem to affect the the, uh, social desirability or acceptance of of hydroelectric power as as one of the suites of solutions um, available to us to produce low carbon power. So let's see. Let's hope that it doesn't come to pass and we'll have to react to the news as it happens. I I would put the event occurring at much lower probability than the Twitter sphere would assign to it. Famous last words. Let's hope I haven't jinxed it. But I, I think this sort of mini crisis will come and go without incident. Let's hope. Fingers crossed for sure. And it is important, the perception, because, it, you know, perceptions create policy and policy creates new reactors. So we'll see what happens. I'm focusing on some of the risks here because I do find myself bullish on uranium, bullish on nuclear. And sometimes I feel like I need a little bit of a reality check when I get this bullish on something. So another threat that I thought I would talk to you about, and this is for the benefit of humanity rather than the failures of humankind, which would be war and destruction. But fusion is another potential bear case for future nuclear plants. And I know that in the world of energy, fusion is always 20 years away, they like to joke. But if there was some kind of fusion breakthrough and they did find a way to create reliable fusion energy, which I think is far away, but we're talking long term, that would be definitely a catalyst to the downside for nuclear power and uranium. So I wonder if you could just talk to your knowledge on fusion, where we're at and where do you think, do you think it's even achievable to create a fusion plant? I would say that we have a slightly different view on the potential impact of fusion vis-a-vis the demand for fission reactors. Uh, We think that fusion is an unnecessary invention. It brings very little to the table that fission can't already do. The point of fusion is to try to solve fake problems concocted by the radical environmentalists that we discussed earlier. And you can bet your bottom dollar that if a true technological breakthrough that did enable fusion to occur, the same environmentalists would be violently opposed to it because it has nothing to do with safety or nuclear waste or uh, proliferation risks or whatever invented constraint uh, that they're hoisting upon uh, the population today. And so fusion is just not necessary. If fission were invented today, it would be hailed as a civilization-saving technology that we would all be joyously celebrating. There is no technical or really financial barriers to the full deployment of our fission capabilities. The barriers are political, and even the economic ones are just offshoots of political. The environmental movement has done its level best to delay, obstruct, and increase the cost of nuclear power. And then they turn around and say, we shouldn't pursue nuclear because it takes too long and it's too expensive. That's a political problem. There is no technology needed to be invented. There is no financial hurdles that can't be overcome. This is truly just a political choice and we should make it. And fusion is nothing more than a purposeful diversion in our view from the solutions that already exist. Very interesting. I guess I can, I'll chalk up fusion as a non-issue then. Certainly Um, not in the near term (laughs) bull bear case of the price of uranium in our view. 
Absolutely. And, and another thing that sometimes comes up in this sort of analysis of bull bear is competition and the flooding of the market with new fresh energy, which, you know, if there was a nuclear renaissance, obviously that's bullish for uranium, but not necessarily for SMR companies if they're not getting all these contracts. But I had Robert Bryce on the show and, and he was talking about the NRC and, and the way that they've made it very difficult for new projects to move forward. So I think that in my view, companies like New Scale, for example, that have of SMR technology that's approved, I think they've built a fairly large, wide and deep moat based on the hurdles they had to go through with the NRC. I wonder if you could touch a little bit on, on why you think that's happening and what exactly is going on there. The new scale NRC situation proves the exact point I was making earlier. The moat that you described is political. They have crossed an enormous regulatory regime that makes it almost impossible to get projects like that over the line. And they have run the full gauntlet and finally got a design over the line. Their design is not particularly differentiated, except for the fact that the NRC has approved it. That is a choice. That is a political choice. We wrote a piece on this called Nuclear Waste, where we, we talked about the NRC's history of obstructing nuclear technology. That is beginning to change. We believe we're starting to see signs that that is beginning to change. And perhaps the approval of the new scale design is testimony to that. But to build on your point in a, in a completely different field, a piece we posted in late June called Separation Anxiety, we would never really be long the producers of the electricity itself or the producers of the commodities themselves because technical advances create the very glut that undermine the business. So we are far more interested in, uh, in this case, we were talking about the production of lithium from direct lithium extraction and so on. If you're interested as an investor to participate in that space, you far more often want to be long the accessories and the sort of pinch point technologies that make the whole thing go and not be long the producers themselves. So in this case, you would want to be long uranium and not be necessarily long electricity companies or power producers. You want to be long the critical material that makes, you know, the reactor work. You don't necessarily want to be long the power producers who are selling a price-taking commodity into a glut that they're creating themselves. And so you're absolutely right uh, in that regard. Yeah, I certainly feel like that's the way that I'm leaning with this is to go into, you know, producers of uranium or, you know, perhaps I had Joe Brown on who has a really great financial pod and uh, YouTube channel. And he, he mentioned that he likes to keep his money in one-third reserves, one-third real estate and one-third business, which includes stocks. I would argue that some money placed in uranium as a commodity could be viewed as a reserve in my personal portfolio because it does feel very secure, although the price can be very volatile. If it's for the long haul, you know, perhaps that's a good place to put it. So just before I let you go, just because I don't always get the chance to talk to you, and I know we focus solely on nuclear and uranium so far, but just thought I would touch a little bit on oil and gas before I let you go, because this is something that I'm very interested in as well. And I listened to various media recordings that you put out on oil and gas, and I thought it was great. So I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the energy world on the oil and gas side very briefly before I let you go and, and where you see those macro headwinds or tailwinds heading. Yeah, so it's a fascinating market and we've written about it a lot. Not too much recently, but we are putting together a presentation for our pro tier uh, coming up here for July, where we're going to talk a little bit about the oil and gas market. Right now, I think what we're seeing is sort of a battle of wills between Saudi Arabia, the US and China. Saudi Arabia is working very hard to put a floor under the price of oil. 
the U.S. and sort of perhaps passive aggressively China working hard to put a ceiling on the price of oil. Although there are some changes that have occurred, and one of the big ones is we had this entire series of previously mandated forced selling out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that was supposed to occur, the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve that was supposed to occur over the next three to five years, and as part of an agreement that reached in January, all but the 2023 mandated sales have been wiped off the board, which means, in fact, after we get through this latest batch of forced selling of the SPR, there is significant indication that at a minimum there won't be much in the way of oil flowing out of it and therefore putting a lid on the price of oil. And in fact, they might begin to refill it. We're a little dubious as to the extent to which they'll actually refill it. But at a minimum, a bearish wedge has been removed from the table. One of the people we follow on Twitter is Jared Dillon, and he was out this morning with a note that was very bullish on oil. I think long oil bulls have been beaten down in the past year as the SPR and and sort of a slower than expected economic restart in China has led to extreme bearishness, at least in the paper markets. And so we shall see whether the Saudi commitment to put a floor on the price of oil will win and whether, in fact, the reversal of the uh, SPR flows or at least a slowing of the flow out might take away that uh, bearish wedge that has weighed on the market for the past 12 months. Very interesting. Yeah, the SBR has a has a huge role to play as we move forward because sometimes it's just, you know, incremental movements that can flip the script on the direction for a commodity like oil, that's for sure. Price is um, set at the margin, yeah. And so at the apex of the drain, it was a million barrels a day. That's an enormous amount of oil. 1% of global consumption can swing the prices 10 to 20 or 30%. And so that seems to be coming to an end. Now, our friend Dr. Anas would point out that China has its own strategic petroleum reserve and is is just as interested in the U.S. as keeping uh, oil prices down. And they may, in fact, take the U.S.'s place and continue to smother the market with a bit of excess oil compared to production. But uh, it's a delicate balance for them, given their relationship with the Saudis. And so uh, we shall see. We shall see indeed. And that's what makes this job fun is we can just kind of talk about how we see the world and then sort of watch it play out. And it was really interesting to me, just as you mentioned, I'm from Canada, I live in Ontario, and I've been on this for a while, just kind of viewing the energy market. And in my mind, I, I don't see any way that we can keep up with demand other than nuclear, especially in that zero world and that zero economy. So it was very interesting to me to see those huge announcements come out. I think they were two days apart, you know, for both for new can and for extra SMRs. I think the Darlington plant was going to have one SMR, another going to have four. So it's just amazing to see this macro stuff actually happen. And I think that your media and what you guys do is a big part of me understanding some of this stuff. So wanted to say thanks for that. And I also wanted to give you an opportunity to let anybody who's listening know where they can find your content. Sure. I appreciate it coming back and always enjoy our discussion. And you know, before I give the commercial, I, I would say that Ontario has already one of the greenest grids in the Western world. And I do think that both the failed Green Energy Act of Ontario and now its its rebirth of its nuclear can-do technology are testimony to the wisdom of your political leaders. And, you know, uh, to be fair, uh, we've been hard on Justin Trudeau, but on this issue, he has reversed course and he should be applauded for doing so. And so congratulations on winning the lottery of being able to live in one of the greenest grids uh, in the world. And when I pass through Ontario, that, you know, despite 60% of its electricity being produced by nuclear. I don't see glowing green fish in the rivers and everybody seems to be normal and streets flow uh, efficiently and the restaurants are great to eat at. So I you know, I, I do think that Ontario stands as an outstanding example of what can be done and, and they should be applauded for doing so. You can find all of our work at doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we mentioned we publish six to eight times a month and every four or five days. And we only publish when we think we have a great piece and when it's ready. So we don't publish to a firm deadline. And we are 100% subscriber supported. You can't be as provocative on as many topics as we 
we are and risk the wrath of advertisers. And so we would rather be subscriber supported and our readers support us. And they're the ultimate judge on the quality of our work. Uh, every subscriber is precious. We have many of them and we're very grateful. And this is what we do for a living. We're a very small team and we, we publish on all the things that we talked about today and, and many more as well. And really appreciated the opportunity to come back, Joe, and congrats to you on the success of the show. Thanks so much. And thanks for the shout out to Ontario. And obviously, that's probably why it's so easy for me to see this in other places in the world, because I live here. And, and as you say, nobody's glowing green. So thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk again soon. You bet. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you. Thank you.